and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Welcome to Bent Tree, everyone. My name is Pastor Paul, and glad to be here with you. And oh, you're good. You're good. If you would go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 6. I know that's a surprise to many of you. Uh, not. Uh, so, Bentree family and friends, though, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? It's just good to be here uh, together. We're in the, uh, I think, the 75th week uh, in this uh We're going a bit slow, some would say. Uh, We call this series, So That You May Believe, as we continue to work our way kind of verse by verse through the Gospel of John, because the thing that the Apostle John tells us as the reason that he actually wrote the Gospel, he says, So That You May Believe. So we titled the sermon series that. Believe what, though? That Jesus is who he claims to be, namely the Son of God who comes to earth, takes on the flesh of mankind, becomes a mediator between God and man. Uh, You could honestly say the purpose of this book is salvation. Or you could say that you believe in Jesus to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, That's the goal of John writing the gospel. That's what we're here for. Now, most of the time, when we go through uh, verse by verse, uh, through our preaching, we can make a little bit of progress in the storyline, meaning the narrative kind of advances a bit. And like we saw the feeding of the giant crowd of the first part of this chapter, then we, they, uh, we, the early part of the conversation uh, with the crowd of Jesus as they come to the far side of the Sea of Galilee after Jesus walks on the water. You remember that? They, this crowd wants him to make more bread for them to prove that he is the Messiah. And the challenge now is that Jesus, in his reply to them in verse 37, is just so, well, it's just so packed full of meaning, we don't want to miss anything. That's why it, we seem like we're stuck a little bit on this, but we could, we could just skim over this. I mean, you get a lot out of it, but my idea though is, is try, instead of trying to advance the storyline, I would rather pull some other scriptures in to try to unpack this scripture a little bit more. So at least for this week, we're going to have a little bit of a change in our approach. Uh, We're still looking at John chapter 6, verse 37. Look at this with me. And in those that passage that our brother Don read for us, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We need to dive into this topic that we studied last week. The topic is what Jesus is claiming here. What we called last week is this. Preserving grace is the doctrine of eternal security of faith. For those that have been born again and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, this is the note I gave you last week. But there's so much here, right? We need to understand what this is talking about. What is this preserving grace, this doctrine of eternal security 
for those that have been born again and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's number five in the doctrines of grace, if you think about that. Now, if you missed last week or any of the weeks before, they're on YouTube. You can go look at those, pick those up. Now, let me tell you something that I used to believe, I used to teach, but I don't now. I believed it back then. This would be like the early 1990s and and fought hard to defend what I'm about to tell you. Now, go with me. See if this is maybe what you've seen. Maybe this will help you. Um, I used to believe that, yes, I was sinful before I became a Christian. But, but I believe that I was not so very sinful that I could, that I could see God's free and universal offer of salvation of the gospel through Jesus Christ. And then I could accept it. I certainly did not believe that I was cut off from God or, or what the Apostle Paul says, that we're spiritually dead. I thought that I could make a rational choice with my brain to come to Jesus when I wanted to, not because I have free will, because I have free will, right? I have free will. I mean, I'm even thinking right now, I have free will. My thought process was something like this, See if this makes sense to you. Since I have a free will, I can freely choose whether to accept the free offer of the salvation in the gospel when I hear it, or I can choose to reject it. I believe that even if I choose not to accept God's offer of salvation and end up in hell, it's not God's fault God did everything he could possibly do to make my salvation possible, didn't he? But that God would never intrude on my own free will. I knew I was a believer in Jesus because I heard the message of the offer of salvation that my sin could be paid for. If I prayed and asked him for forgiveness from my sin and turned from my sin. You with me? What I used to think? I used to think once I repented, that, that, uh, that's what repentance means. Is, you know, just turning from sin and followed God. I believe once I repented, then I would be born again and then God would save me. You tracking? Because I had repented of my sin. In other words, my repentance was a precondition in my mind to the regeneration or being born again. I had cleaned up my act, so to speak, so that I was now acceptable to come to Jesus. That's the way I used to view my salvation in the 80s and early 90s. And I'm sure that many of you believe that was the way you were saved as well. Now, if you believe what I just said, that I believe way back then, hear me. I'm not saying you're not saved. No, 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 no. Your salvation is secure in Jesus. Amen? Amen. But what I'm saying is that what you believe is not the complete picture of what God says according to his word. That's what we're talking about. I'm going to step on some toes today, and that's not my goal. My goal is to give you some some space to think through this. Let me see if I can give you a more full picture at the same time of what this looks like. Because I know a ton of Christians that worry about 
losing their salvation, thinking about how I used to believe that I was saved, that keeping my myself saved then rested on my own shoulders and on my own ability. Here's the problem with that view. I can assure you that I just don't have the ability to not sin and to hold on to my salvation if that's what's required. None of us do. So how do we make sense of all this? How do we make sense? Here's where my old doctrine didn't line up with Scripture back in the day. The truth of preserving grace, or what we also call the eternal security of the believer that we are studying today, was taught to me when I was very young. You've heard the saying, once saved, always saved. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Now, many in the Baptist church would say, once saved, always saved. It's not wrong. It's a right saying. But what was wrong with was how I understood that truth and how it worked. And how it fits into the saving purposes of God and salvation. Or what we call the doctrines of grace. The dogs. Now, if you see it. It's only in the context of the doctrines of grace that you can lay your head down on the big soft pillow at night of, and say, yeah, I'm saved. But why is that true? Think about this. When I used to believe the way I just described to you, I would run into a problem. On one hand, I believe that my salvation rested on my ability to keep believing and keep myself saved. On the other hand, I was taught once saved, always saved. That required me to embrace two poles of contradiction. Do you see the contradiction between those two? Do you see it? Let me see it. Let me add nod. Okay. Both of those cannot be true at the same time. Think about your life up to this point. We've seen people in our lives maybe family member, maybe a close friend, that once claimed Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then at some point in their life, they turn from Jesus and they say they don't believe anymore. And I've seen some of those people die. Have you? So when I've been sitting at the funeral of someone who once claimed Christ and then rejected Christ, or at minimum, after they claim Christ, then they live just like they didn't believe. They weren't a Christian. When I had this old way of thinking back in the 90s, my question when I would sit at those kind of funerals were, are they still saved? Or did they go to heaven or did they go to hell? Because I was taught once saved, always saved, right? And we see that in the Bible in verse 37, Second half, that's what Jesus is talking about. But here's the conflict, where the conflict came in my mind at those funerals. See if this happens to you. Maybe the deceased person had been saved, but then lost their salvation when they quit believing. I would think that. But let me take you deeper here into my conundrum. This is a scary place to go in my brain. So y'all want to come with me. When I was young and I asked those questions that I just outlined for us, there were generally two camps that Christians fell into. Get me? Two camps. 
And depending on what camp you fell into, it showed how you might answer that question I would have at those funerals. One camp said, yes, that person that accepted Jesus for a while, but then rejected Jesus and died, they are still saved and in the presence of Jesus right now because they prayed a prayer and made a commitment to Jesus. And it didn't matter that there was no relationship with Jesus at all. He was their Savior, even if he wasn't their Lord. They would say, once saved, always saved. And they go, check, box. And if you ask that person in camp number one, why they believe that, because you knew that deceased person pretty well, and that they hated God, and they had rejected Jesus, people in camp number one would reply, well, they prayed a prayer when they were 12 or 24 or 40 years old, and even though they rejected God, uh, God never rejected them. Now, I realize I may be stepping on some toes here, so you stay with me. Listen close. They would say, once saved, always saved. But people in camp number one could not tell you why they were still saved. They had just always been taught once saved, always saved. They had no answer behind. It's like they were just like a parrot. They would say that. They didn't know why, though. I wanted to believe like someone in camp number one, but it just didn't get it. Why were they still saved? Are you tracking with me, at least in my messed up early 1990s? But then the people in camp number two which is funny to say it that way. All right, people in camp number two, I'm 14, sorry. When I asked those questions of if a guy that once claimed to be saved, but then rejected Christ, would still God, would God still save them? They would answer, no. They lost their salvation. They had it, but they lost it because they chose not to believe anymore. The people in camp number two couldn't answer why Jesus would say what he says here in the second half of verse 37. When he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I go, what about that verse? They go, we don't know. Do you see the two camps? Do you see them? Have you wrestled with one or maybe both of these? I've ping-ponged off both of them. Now let me give you what I think Jesus is teaching us here in John 6. And indeed, we'll see this doctrine of preserving grace throughout the rest of John and and really through the end of the Bible. This is the third position, I think, is a biblical one. So camp number three, go back with me of what we've learned from what Jesus has taught us over the last few weeks of studying this passage. If you grasp that doctrine of radical depravity or what we call our total inability to turn to Jesus and choose Jesus on our own. It leads to other doctrines we've studied so far, doesn't it? That according to the greatest contract of all contracts, the covenant of redemption, God the Father chose some of those in his hands, all of whom were guilty, dead in their sin. He chose them not based on any some foreseen quality, not based on uh, any work that they would do. And then God gave them to Jesus, God the Son, as a gift of love. That's sovereign election. And that Jesus has paid the price to redeem us out of the slave market of sin by his blood and reconcile them to the Father. To save us from our own guilt. To save us from the Father's wrath 
for our own sin and make us into sons and daughters of Christ Jesus who now enjoy all the rights and privileges as a kid of of God. Now that's definite atonement. The ones whom the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, look, willingly through the work of the Holy Spirit calling them. The Holy Spirit calls them from spiritual death into spiritual life. Are you with me? He gives them a new heart and a new mind. A flesh now that loves God. The, the, the Holy Spirit gives them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus as Savior. Then he seals those Christians, those in Christ, what the Bible refers to, the elect. He seals them. And what's awesome is that the Holy Spirit now lives inside them, begins to change them into the image of Christ Jesus. Now, what's awesome is that as the Holy Spirit is slowly growing us into that image, we call that sanctification. He also, at the very same time, guarantees our eventual glorification in heaven. That's irresistible call. That's why what Jesus is saying in John 37, 637 is so true. Write this down. A little bit different definition here. Preserving grace is based on the unchanging character and promise of God. Preserving grace is based on the unchanging character and promises of God. Here's what I know. If we try to make our salvation ultimately dependent upon some act of man, of him keeping his salvation, no matter how tiny, well then, nothing can be certain where salvation comes from, can it? We have to ask, Does my salvation depend on my ability to believe and keep believing? Or, 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 does it depend on God's ability to choose me and make me alive in Christ Jesus through the Spirit and keep me safe and secure in Christ Jesus to the very end of my life? That's the proper understanding, the meaning of once saved, always saved. Because if it's on me, To save myself. Then it's on me to keep myself saved. If that were true, it's not. But if it were true, then Jesus' words here in John 6, 37 are not true when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That would be impossible. But we know Jesus is right. Amen? Let me give you a thought experiment. You ready to go deeper? Here we go. Thought experiment. You cool with that? If the doctrines of grace, the dogs are not true, if they're not true, if Jesus came to earth to live this perfect life and died on a Roman cross as only to make salvation possible, and if Jesus died not knowing if anyone would believe in him or not, then there would have been at least the possibility that no one would believe and that his death would have been for nothing. Thought experiment. If no one took Jesus up on his offer of salvation, 
Do you get what I'm saying? In other words, if that were true, if no one took Jesus up on his offer of salvation, then he would have died, but no one would have been saved if no one chose Jesus. If no one chose to believe in Jesus as the son of God. Now, we know that's not true. We know that's not what happened. Just a thought experiment. Because Jesus teaches us that God determines who will be saved and sees to it that they are saved. Now, you cannot have it both ways. God either determines who will be saved and sees to it that they are saved, or, 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 there is at least the possibility that no one will believe in Jesus and perish. Will you grant me that? Think the greatest contract of all time. When God the Father gives the Son some of those in his hand, we call that the covenant of grace or covenant of redemption. If it is possible that some who God the Father has chosen and given to Jesus before time began will not believe, if that is the case, what Jesus is saying is not true and should not be in the Bible. Come on now. There are those who disagree with reformed doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing us. They have tried to get around this problem by introducing a new way of thinking about God's foreknowledge. Now listen close. Back in the early 1990s when I disagreed with reformed doctrine, this is how I used to teach back then. I would say that God in his total and complete knowledge, or what we call his omniscience, looked down through time and space and learned that some people would believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So then God the Father sent Jesus to earth to die for those people that discovered, he discovered would eventually choose Jesus. You with me? That's what I used to teach To get around this problem of God choosing to save some out of those in his hands awaiting judgment for sin. And give them to Jesus. By the way, what I was attempting to do back in the day was to protect a person's free will to choose Jesus as their savior. Because I thought to teach that God choosing to save some but not others was to make God into this moral monster. A monster who drags someone who do do not freely choose to come to Jesus kicking and screaming into the kingdom while at the same time keeping those out who earnestly want to come. Like I thought, if I can't freely choose God on my own terms, then it's not really love that I have for God. I was really trying, (laughs) I was really trying to protect God's reputation by leaving the decision to choose Jesus or not to the free choice of the person. That way the person was at fault for not choosing God. In my way of thinking back then, I was protecting God's reputation. I would have argued back then that what I'm teaching today was just making people into robots that must love God because he made me love him. And on top of that, I would say, if God chooses us before we choose him, and God doesn't choose everybody and offer salvation to everybody, I would say, well, that's not fair, God. Now, I was wrong. 
Wrong, 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 wrong. Because now we know the truth from what Jesus has been teaching. That we were raised to life in Christ Jesus, born again. Not because of our own will, but because of God choosing us even while we didn't care about him. Even while we were in our sin. When we were still dead spiritually. When, when we're born again, regenerated, the spirit gives us a new heart that desires now to love God. We chose to come to Jesus because he chose us. This is where we always have to keep in mind that God, God's not obligated to choose anyone for salvation. Here's the problem with my old views. First, God's reputation doesn't need protection from me. The Bible does just fine on its own. But second, my old way of thinking makes the situation even worse. You say, how so, Paul? Well, think about it. Because instead of making salvation dependent on the will of a messed up, sinful, and spiritually dead mankind, it makes that. Now it makes even the death of Jesus himself dependent on the will of man. And we know that's not true. Think about this. If my old doctrine were true, it's not, but if it were true, back to our thought experiment. If God had somehow looked down through time and saw that no one would believe, then Jesus would not have come and died, right? Will you grant me that? If he saw no one was gonna believe, he's not gonna come and die. Because God the Father would not have sacrificed his son for no one and no sin. And here's the other problem with that God looking through time and choosing the elect based on their choosing Jesus first. One, one, God has never learned anything. He's perfect in all his knowledge. We call that his omniscience. Because my old way of thinking would have meant that God was somehow hoping people would choose his son No, no, that's not right. God knows he is the one choosing, not man. His perfect plan of redemption just doesn't make salvation possible, reducing God to the status of a spectator going, I hope you come, I hope you're saved. Hoping that someone takes up on his offer, I did everything I could, you you save yourself now. His perfect plan of redemption is designed to ensure That all those who the Father gives him will come to him. The spiritually dead can't choose. He's dead in his sin. Dead spiritually. Second, second, the word elect that we find all through scripture means the chosen or choice has been made. Not based on our will, but solely on God's sovereignty. Now back in the day, I would have said wrongly, That God's highest value in the process of salvation was man's repentance, his man's choice to believe or not believe, and then his repentance. That was God's highest value. Man's choice. What do you want to do? Like God was somehow limited by what I think. But what I was missing is that God placed the highest value Not on man's free will, but rather on God's sovereignty. We have this very self-centered way uh, we think about salvation, especially in America. It's all about me. 
Actually, actually, it's all about God and bring God bringing glory to himself. His purpose and his plans and his ability to pull off all those plans are his highest value in determining life in Christ Jesus. Write this down. God's providence, in other words, his plans, that's what that means, resulting in God's glory are the highest value in determining who is called to life in Jesus. God's providence, his plans, resulting in God's glory are the highest value in determining who is called to life in Christ Jesus. It's about God's glory, not our decision. Now, what's hard is we don't know what his plans are, do we? Totally. There's a lot hidden. We, we know some of them, but we certainly, there's a bunch of God's plans, his providence, that we simply don't know because he has not made it known to us. We're just in the dark on that. Maybe we'll know in heaven about this. I don't know. I'm thinking we probably will, at least some. But on this side of heaven, his providence is a mystery why things happen. Here's where we have to come back to this great biblical principle that God is not only the author of salvation, meaning his plan of salvation comes right from him, but also as the author of salvation, not only does God begin the story, he finishes it too. He finishes the story of all salvation. He carries us across the finish line. God brings our salvation to a full and complete conclusion. He draws people to himself to display his glory. That's why we're, the overarching principle of the reform uh, doctrine is solo deo gloria, to God be the glory. That's why Jesus is saying, in one of my all-time favorite passages from from scripture in the very last chapter of the Bible, flip there, it's just on the last page, Revelation 22. When all the redeemed people of God have been chosen and it's all done with Jesus, uh, all the saved are there and we're in all, we're all standing there in heaven in glory and Jesus declares this. Revelation 22, look at verse 13. Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. By the way, for the redeemed, for the elect, we'll get to hear this in person. You hear me? Because we'll be standing there. This is where Jesus is, this is what Jesus is pointing out in verse 37 of John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, this is a tier two issue. So Paul, why are you spending so much time on that? Because there's so much false teaching about it. The reason that I want us to understand this is because it directly relates how we live our lives out in the everyday. If we think that God is, is this being who had to save us because we came to him and chose him, and, and so he had now to let us into heaven because we chose him. Two things I want us to think about here. One, what happens if we do too many bad things like we sin just one too many times? 
our worry with that kind of God is that he might say, well, then you're out of here. You lost your salvation. You know, you had like two sins left and you did four of them. But that's not the God of the Bible, is it? And two, if we think God is waiting for us to agree to be saved, doesn't that make us sovereign instead of God? That directly affects how we live our lives. To rest in the assurance that he loves me and he chose me and will keep me safe until the end. Now here's where I used to go wrong in another way. This is like Paul's go wrong day. This is like I'm telling you all my messed up theology from the 90s. I would say, well, if it's true that God draws us irresistibly What if I don't want to be drawn to him? Like you you could ask, is God coercing me or, or anyone to come to Christ and be saved? Like, is it just like I'm some kind of robot because I, that doesn't seem like love to me. The answer is no, it's not like that at all. So if God is not forcing me and not manipulating me to come to Christ Jesus, then what? Write this down. This is important. God draws us to himself with the cords of love. And we'll talk about this more in coming weeks. This is beautiful. God draws us to himself with cords of love. Some of you have family members that you're praying for. This is what you're praying for right here, isn't it? You're saying, God, change their heart. Draw them. Make them alive. Come, bring them in. 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, the, uh, to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, the payment of our sins. Now this is number four again in the doctrines of grace here. What we call the irresistible call of God. Stay with me, this is important stuff. Walking us from, I'm sorry, walking, waking us from spiritual death. What do we mean waking us from spiritual death? Is it that God kind of orders our life in such a way that he kind of tricks us into becoming believers in Jesus? Like those of you with little babies, little toddlers trying to get them to eat something they don't want to eat. You're like, open wide, here comes the plane. And when they go, "Ah," you shove it in before they close their mouth. Is that how God works? Like, here's Jesus, get it in there, swallow, swallow. Certainly God uses stuff in our life to draw us. But I think the answer is much deeper than this. Before Adam and Eve sinned, that might have worked, but not since we're dead in our sins. Remember our total inability to choose God. We are dead spiritually, not sick. We're dead. It's not just that we will not choose God. Check this out. We cannot choose God. Remember last time when we were together, we said it's not, 
a physical inability. It lies in our deep sin nature that we are born into. Every person other than Jesus. We will not believe without being born again. And that is by the Spirit of God alone. These cords of love are not just a gentle wooing, which are easily resisted, but they are strong, unbreakable, unrelenting. When the Apostle Paul says we are dead in our sins, dead people are not able to return to life by themselves. But let's go with that thought for just a minute. What would it take for a dead man, I'm talking a corpse, to respond physically to the voice of Jesus? What would it take? It'd take a miracle, wouldn't it? Jesus' friend Lazarus was dead in the tomb four days when Jesus showed up. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out in his grave clothes, out of the tomb. Jesus raises Lazarus back from the dead, back to life. And when God calls us to life spiritually, think about this. It's the same thing. It's a miracle every time. It's not your decision. It's Jesus calling you to life. Lazarus didn't decide somehow to go, I think I'll be alive now. Maybe I'll come out. No, Jesus made him alive first before he got up. And Lazarus, Realizing he was alive, hears the voice of Jesus, whom he recognized, it is then compelled to obey. Why? He's been made alive. He's not a corpse anymore. It's the same for us in our salvation. We call it being born again. That's why we call it that. But we could just as easily call it, listen to me, resurrection. Let's get really basic here. The reformers call this, the, in Latin, the ordo salutis. Ordo, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Here it comes. God chooses. God regenerates. The individual believes. Order of salvation. God chooses. God regenerates. The individual believes. The reason this is so easy to get backwards is that we think it's all about us. We have been taught, wrongly I might add, that the individual believes first. But listen to me, that can't be true. Radical corruption, total inability to choose God because of our sin. It's simply just not possible. We are in the grave, dead spiritually. Why we get confused is that when the individual believes, that's not salvation, that's our response to salvation. It's like when we come out of the grave and we repent, we pray, we realize we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. So many evangelical pastors have just quit teaching on this, and so people make the wrong assumptions. They, some have even wrongly taught, including me in the past, that it was at the moment of a person's prayer that they were saved. The prayer, the repentance, is a response to the regeneration that has taken place from God. James tells us in this, James 1.18, 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's will. Or remember what the apostle John taught us back in John chapter one, many moons ago, verse 11 through 13. Listen to this. Talking, he, talking about Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, when I used to think that my salvation rested on my shoulders, on my ability to keep myself saved, it was verses like this that would sink my doctrine every time. Because it, I used to put myself in the center of what it meant to choose Jesus. But Jesus says, you're not the center, it's me. Verses like this are all over scripture. Like this one by Jesus himself. When he was about to be betrayed and crucified. He says to his disciples in John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me. Hello? He says, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now listen, no one becomes a believer just by deciding to become and believe. He can't. Scripture's clear on that. And yet we live with that tension that we must believe. How can that be true? If he chooses us, remember those parallel truths that we see in scripture. God is sovereign and man is responsible to believe. The answer, how can those go together? We come to believe in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior because God does this first miracle. He makes us alive. We believe in Jesus then. The shorthand way to say that in regeneration is regeneration precedes faith. A person must believe, yes. You must accept Jesus if you are to be saved today. Here's a question what I used to have. Well, then why me? Why not that guy or that guy? Those girls. Why did God choose me and not... Someone else. But by the way, I could get really sarcastic about this on the day. I know that's uh, probably a surprise to you. I would say reformed doctrine, orthodoxy, makes God into some kind of tyrant, a monster, moral monster. Because I would say if God chooses some and he doesn't choose everyone, then he's rejecting the one he's not choosing. And that's not fair. I would say things like, why would God save some and not save everyone? What about those people in other countries that have never heard the gospel and they die? Why would God, I would say, why would God let innocent people go to hell? You know what the answer is? There are no innocent people. There's none. Remember, the real question we ask is why does God save anyone at all? 
Because we all deserve hell for our sin. Salvation is not from man. Salvation is from God alone. He intervenes. This is what we call the divine initiative. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I used to pray, well, if the doctrines of grace are true, then we don't have to share the gospel. I would say, well, God, you're going to share the gospel since you're going to save whoever you're going to save. Have you ever thought that? But there are two big problems with that. One is that Jesus commands believers. He says this. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Second reason, what we've already learned here today. The mechanism that God uses to save his elect is the preaching of the gospel. Now stay with me. God not only ordains who and when someone is saved, but he also ordains the person who shares the gospel with them. This should blow your mind. God not only ordains who and when someone is saved, but he also ordains the person who shares the gospel with them. You could even write in there, he ordains the place and time and the, the drink at Starbucks you ordered that day. One of the most wrong-headed ideas about Reformed doctrine is that it teaches we shouldn't share our faith because God's going to just save who he's going to save. That's wrong. That's wrong. In fact, the doctrine of grace actually compels believers to go and share their faith and find those lost sheep who God has chosen to save. Most, listen to me, most of the missionary movements of the last 500 years have come from those who hold to the reformed doctrine of salvation. And it's not close. A great example is the first modern missionary, William Carey, the father of modern day missions, was a particular Baptist. That's what we are, by the way. He ministered in India in the 1700s to go find the lost sheep. This is why it matters. This is why it matters. When the apostle Peter is saying to Christians in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Imperishable seed, eternal seed. Not to embarrass you, but you get what Peter is referring to? You don't. You'd be turning red. Peter is being a bit graphic for us, like where babies come from. It's a good thing. He's using this as an analogy. He's using the picture of the male seed producing new life. That through the living and abiding word of God, we are born again. Born of God, our Father in heaven. For Christians, we are no longer descendants of Adam. We are now the children of God. Think about what happens when we are born again. First, God gives us faith. As a gift, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, 
talking about faith, is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Folks, I don't know how you get around that verse. The faith, you don't have it without God. First, God gives us the faith as a gift. Then God sends the seed of his word so that the faith is made alive and produces spiritual life in us. By the way, who's the mother in this analogy? That would be the church. Described as the bride of Christ. The church fills that function. People hear the word of God preached in church and and it is in the church that new life is born. And it grows into this full spiritual person God has designed them to be. People are born again into the church. And how do we know? How do we know when a new life in Christ has been born? How do we know that? The cry of confession. I believe in the Son of God. They not only say it, they believe, they live it out in their belief. Back to what Jesus is saying. Back to John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. For believers in Christ Jesus, the reason we have this preserving grace, this assurance of salvation, is because our salvation didn't come from us in the first place. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I I know as I wrestled with this of how... I was saved. I, God, I know that, uh, that 15, almost 20 years of wrestling. God, I pray that, uh, that Bentry Church would not wrestle that long, but that they would look to you, to your word completely for the assurance of their salvation, that their salvation doesn't rest on their own ability but that you have made them alive through the gift of faith, through the death of your son. God, I thank you that you didn't make just salvation possible, but that you made it secure. We come to our time of communion, if you would. Just bring, get out the little cup. Just treat this as prayer time. Like God's on the line. Get out the little cup. And we ask that only Christians partake in this. Those that have trusted Jesus as their Savior. Those that have believed. If you want to open it, be real careful. Kind of. There's two pieces, one on the top, one on the bottom. It doesn't matter if you're a member of the church or if you're a member somewhere else. If you're a Christ follower, you are a member of the big church. Amen. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. On the night Jesus was betrayed earlier that night, he took the bread and he took the cup from the Passover feast and he broke the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And before you take this, I want you to think. You have been forgiven of your sin. Amen? Are you holding unforgiveness towards anyone? Don't take this until you have forgiven. Until you have let that sin go and repented of it. 
Paul says it's dangerous to take this without having a forgiven. Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? Do that right now. Jesus takes that bread, he breaks it. He said, this represents my body broken for you. For believers right now, this is the body of Christ. Take and eat it. Then he took the last cup of the Passover. The cup of suffering it was called. He said, this cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He says, as often as you get together, we do it monthly here. We're going to do it on Good Friday as well. We remember what this means. Now, we don't believe that this juice and this bread magically becomes the body of Christ. But here's what we do think. It is that this time that we are sharing, we are communing with God and with each other, the church. That there is a special grace that flows through this time. That when you picture the sins that you're guilty of, that Jesus says, look, my blood has paid for those sins. Some of you wrestle. You go, but Paul, you don't know what I've done. Hey, let Jesus' blood be enough. Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Father, we remember what you have done for us, but we also look forward to the day when we will be with Jesus in person in heaven and celebrate the, the marriage of the Lamb, that great feast, when we'll all be together, when Jesus says, I am the first, the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. We trust you, God. Help us in our faith to follow you all the way to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.